Hello everyone, welcome to the Sons of Antiquity podcast. I'm your host Evan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host Dan. How's it going? Today's episode is not about an ancient invention, but a modern one. Yes, listeners, rev up your engines, because today's episode is all about cars. Are they a blessing or a curse? But before you call us hypocrites for picking such a recent development in history, let us explain that cars have had a significant impact on how and where we live, our culture, our food, and so much more. The automobile is not an isolated mechanical invention, but rather a revolutionary machine that some might say the entire Western world has been built to accommodate at the expense of other forms of transportation and even people. We'd like to acknowledge that many of the ideas for this episode came from the YouTube channel Not Just Bikes, which is an admittedly left-leaning channel, but we are always fascinated by this kind of content, and we don't think conservatives have to always be bound by radical individualism and the status quo in America. We've also referenced the YouTube channel City Nerd and Engineering Explained, so kudos to them. Let's begin our analysis of the modern automobile's impact by taking you back in time to the good old days, to a world before the horseless carriage. Life was hard in ancient times, but one thing people never had to worry about was being run over by a bus. While we looked twice before crossing the street to avoid the non-stop motion of vehicles, ancient people made the streets of cities their second home. People walked casually from one place to another. Goods were sold. People socialized. Festivals and parades moved freely through town. Kids played games, and animals were transported or used to haul goods. Inner-city roads had multiple functions, most of which were not geared toward high-speed transport at all. This meant that roads were generally smaller and tighter, as there was no need to leave room for multiple lanes or the large machines that occupy our modern roads. This trend continued well into the 19th century, until the Industrial Revolution forced governments to rethink the layout of their increasingly mechanized worlds. And without all those machines, cities were much quieter. Sure, large gatherings would have been loud, as would the festivals mentioned earlier, And I'm sure the Roman Colosseum got pretty rowdy, but that pales in comparison to the constant 70 decibel minimum of automobile traffic. Add in road construction, passing trucks, blaring horns, and emergency and police sirens, you've got an endless background noise ranging from 80 to 120 decibels, by the way, exceeding what the World Health Organization recommends. Yeah, that's uh, that could lead to permanent damage. An intermediate step between the horse and buggy and the modern car was, of course, the locomotive. Trains are loud, but pass through quickly, and they are pretty efficient, carrying literally tons of cargo or human passengers in a single trip. Plus, passengers are free to relax or sleep while in transit, rather than navigate for themselves. The problem with trains is that they require a lot of room to move. The earlier ones created a lot of smoke from burning coal, and in cities they rely on complex networks of tracks to get them where they need to go safely, without collisions or derailment, which is challenging and a collision or a derailment in a city is a big disaster. Locomotives boomed in the early 1800s, sweeping Europe and America harder and faster than Morbius. But you can't run train tracks to every little location on the map. Some other form of transportation was always going to be required to get you to the train and take you from the train to your destination. This is a big reason why cars took over following World War II, because trains just couldn't compete with cars when it came to traversing the city, and they were often too few and far between to be convenient in the country. But let's not forget about sanitation. Before the modern era, city streets were typically unclean, even by San Francisco's standards. Animal waste, human waste, bugs and rats, rotting food from grocery and butcher shops, and natural and man-made debris were common, and the people had to simply deal with it. Large-scale cleaning was expensive and hard to accomplish, and the streets wouldn't stay clean for long anyway. This made it much easier for diseases, such as the bubonic plague in the 14th century or the cholera pandemic in the 19th century Europe, to spread through dense cities with poor sanitation and waste runoffs leading right into the city streets. It's unclear whether the rise of cars contributed to or simply coincided with the rise of street sanitation. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, most people who belonged to a given nation lived in the country and farmed to feed the hungry city population. Roads were obviously fewer and farther between in these areas, which meant that they were often of lower quality, though some exceptions exist. The ancient Romans were meticulous in planning out their road systems, which were designed so that no critical location in the empire would be disconnected from the rest. Many of those roads, even some rural ones, have survived the past 2,000 years, a testament to their engineering prowess. Despite the importance of farming, historically the sizes of major cities 
were directly related to the health of the empire at large. When the cities were growing, things were going well. At one point in the empire's history, Rome's population hit 1 million people, an impressive feat for the pre-industrial world. As the empire declined and collapsed, Rome and other cities in the Western Roman Empire could decline too. The rich stopped living in the cities and just lived in their villas. Chaos led to a less reliable trade of goods into cities. By the time Rome fell in 476, less than 100,000 people lived there. The success of cities and the success of empires are intricately linked, and let me say, Constantinople, same story. So you would say that maybe that's a part of, a, of like an anticyclosis thing. It's just a natural part of, of the cycle. It's just going to happen. I wouldn't say that. When things are going well, the cities are going well. And the cities tend to be the economic powerhouse of the whole country. Even more so in the ancient world. But that's all ancient history. For over a century, the automobile has been a staple of modern civilization. And it's here to stay. With that being said, let's consider some of the most drastic ways the modern car has changed our very lives. For better or for worse. Starting with our finances. You may be tempted to think that the cost of car ownership is just a matter of how much gas you use. Well, that is part of it. Let's also consider the other costs. We're about to get nerdy. Warning. When purchasing a vehicle in 2021, the average American borrowed $39,721 for new vehicles and $27,291 for used vehicles, amounting to $644 a month for new vehicles and $488 a month for used vehicles over a 5-6 to six year loan. This does not include any down payment. Depreciation on cars is horrendous, and everybody knows it. New cars lose 11% of their value the minute you drive them away, with a further 15-25% to 25% depreciation annually after that. After 5 years, a car is worth 37% of its purchase price. This is a terrible investment. We should also remember that the average auto loan interest rate is a little over 5% for a 5-year loan. Due to the way compound interest works, the average buyer would spend an extra 14% on top of the car payment for a 5-year loan. The average consumer will pay $1,800 annually per car for car insurance, which is mandatory. No getting around that unless you buy the cheap stuff that won't protect you at all. Car maintenance and new parts per year varies greatly, but a generic number to use is about $400 per year. A luxury car and a car on its last legs, the two extremes, will cost more than average. Taxes and registration for a car tends to be about $100 annually. Parking is extremely variable, but if you go to the city, the airport, or a parking garage, you will have to cough up some money. Let's call that $50 a year. Finally, let's get to everyone's favorite, gas. At the time of recording, the average gallon of gas costs $4.86 in the US. Very high, but I suspect it will be getting higher soon. The average miles per gallon is 25. The average distance traveled annually is a little bit over 14,000 miles. Doing some basic algebra, this turns out to be $2,700 annually in gas alone. Besides taxes and registration, every one of these costs scales with the number of miles driven. The more you drive, the more often you'll have to take your car to the shop, change the oil, get gas, etc. Also, car owners are completely dependent on the price of gas. That's why the recent rise in gas prices was so devastating. Every dollar increase of a gallon of gas increases the annual cost of gas by over $500, or almost $50 a month. That's huge, especially for individuals and families already struggling to make ends meet. Speaking of those struggling to make ends meet, the lowest 20% of Americans in terms of income spent about 31% of their total income on transportation in 2020, or $4,500, and that was before the recent inflation started. The average American, who is in the middle quintile of income, spent a little over 16% or $9,400 on transportation. We can only imagine how bad those numbers are in 2022 or the current year, considering that gasoline and cars have been some of the most inflated of all goods. Imagine what you could do with $10,000 in a year. The poor struggle more than any other group in this setup. Except if you live in a huge city like New York City. You pretty much have to have a car in order to survive. Do you want to get a job and make your way up in the world? You need to buy or rent a car first. Since you're poor, dishing out a few thousand dollars just to have the privilege of going to work is not an appealing situation. And you might ask why not take the bus? That is certainly an option most of the time, 
but it cannot be denied that public transportation in the U.S. is abysmal, not just between cities, but within cities too. Most people won't take the bus once they're out of grade school because only the most desperate people take the bus. Its schedule is inconsistent, its routes are convoluted, it gets caught in traffic, and homeless drug addicts hang out on it. Facts. Now these points sure make it seem like car ownership is laughably expensive and worth reconsidering. But assuming you live in the U.S., your dependence on your car isn't necessarily your fault. In fact, it's what the market demands and has demanded for decades. If you want to know why public transport in America pales in comparison to that of Europe, you need only consider a few basic ideas. First, most European cities are older and denser than American cities and were built long before the automobile. The cheapest transportation solution in those cities is public rather than private. Second, the U.S. didn't experience its largest economic boom until the 20th century. The rise of its largest and busiest cities coincided with the rise of the car, a shiny new concept at the time, which urban planners integrated into the design of growing urban centers. Third, cars became less expensive after World War II while suburbs grew. Suburban families could simply buy cars faster and cheaper than governments could plan, allocate funds, and execute construction of rail systems to connect them. Lastly, the car became a symbol of freedom and independence in America after the war. Whether it was actually cheaper or more efficient in the long run didn't concern consumers who needed a reliable mode of transportation right there, right then. And once the demand for cars increased in mid-century America, the demand for public transport decreased, which in turn increased the potential cost of any major public transport project. Not only would you have to pay for the construction itself, you'd also have to reconstruct and redesign part or all of an existing city that was already catering to the automobile. You'd displace traffic, slow businesses, and need plenty of time to get approval for it all. Talk about a serious expense. And let's not forget that the land area of the United States is 3.7 million square miles, and there are a lot of rural communities in that area with people that have no other option but to invest in a car. Even if it were not cost prohibitive and publicly unpopular to invest in major public transport in cities, America as a whole may simply be too large to replicate the infrastructure found in other smaller nations. Basically, the cost of creating a new system similar to those in other countries sounds too expensive and may very well be too expensive, although the jury's still out on that, compared to the cost of simply buying a car and calling it a day. The jury is not out. $10,000 a year per person is ridiculous. And with that amount of tax money, you'd be able to build the best train system in the world to connect everybody. And maybe some buses and, and maybe yeah. some extra bike lanes. I mean, it's possible. It's possible. Let me say this, that most cities in America were founded and thrived before the era of the car. They were not built for the car. That's the thing that people think. They think, oh, the reason America is so spread out and car-centric is because we were built for the car. No, we were built for other forms of transportation and then bulldozed everything to make room for the car. Mm, so that perhaps. was a decision. It's not perhaps. I mean, how would you plan a city before cars came around? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously in, in the time of like the colonies, yeah, we, ha we had New York, we had Boston, and they didn't have cars, fair enough, but they weren't, they were not nearly as developed as they are today. And so once the time of the car came around, that is when they took the shape that they have taken today. The cities existed, but the cities were nowhere near as big as they are today. And that expansion happened in the 20th century, right along the time of the car. So the, the, Cities weren't built for the car, but the cities as we know them in their form today were built because of the Industrial Revolution, which coincided with the car. I think there's, a, there's an argument to be made there. Even if you can make the excuse that America is too big to have public transit between cities, what about public transit within cities? You have major cities. I mean, over 200,000 people in, the, in many, many U.S. cities, and we don't have any valid form of public transit. I agree. That is it ridiculous. Is a, it is an under-invested yeah, uh, area the, of the economy. There. All the money goes to car infrastructure, and they don't put anything aside for besides token money for public. Yeah, exactly, just to appease the, the people who are complaining about because it. Because all the Karens. The Karens are part of the problem here. Yes, and we will get to that later, as well as uh, some, some solutions and, and some debate on the public's reaction to all of this. And one last point before we move on, that... Europe was adopting the car in the same way that the U.S. was whenever the car got big after World War II. With all the Marshall Plan money, they were building those big roads in all these countries, including in the Netherlands. We'll get to that. But they intentionally made plans to 
stop being so car centric and get back to rail and biking and all that. It's not like Europe was going to inevitably go the way of the train and the US inevitably toward cars. Everyone was going to the car until certain countries made the decision to stop being that way. Well, and then they did it they did it early enough to where they could actually It was only like the 70s, 80s, 90s that they were doing. So, it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't a galaxy far far away. Fair. Fair. But we'll get into that more in a minute. The way that the U.S. is designed, it is nearly impossible to walk or bike from where you live to a store or restaurant. If you live in the suburbs, forget about it. Because of zoning laws, it is literally illegal for restaurants and stores to be near residential areas. That is why there are no local shops in your suburban neighborhood. To buy anything requires you to travel by car. You have no other option than to own a car. To do otherwise is to choose immobility. The only exceptions to this are dense urban areas, which are far above average in housing costs. Restaurants and stores exist along arterial roads in ugly strip malls or in huge tracts of land with a massive chain store surrounded by a sea of parking. These major arterial roads are derisively called strodes by strong towns. Strong Towns is a nonprofit organization that seeks to make towns more financially secure and appealing, and they've actually worked with many towns to help balance their budget. Strodes take the worst aspects of streets and roads to create the monster that every American is familiar with, and I would argue everyone has a natural distaste of. We'll get to that. Uh, roads are high-speed connections between two places. They don't have many entrances and exits. They have wide lanes. There is no pedestrian crossing. They have gentle curves, and they have no businesses or residences on the side of the road. Think of our interstate highways. Streets, on the other hand, are in busier areas. There are plentiful sidewalks, thin lanes, pedestrian crossings, numerous side streets, street parking, and businesses and residences are on the side. Streets are for cities and neighborhoods, where there is a bigger risk of people being hit by cars. Roads prioritize high-speed car travel, and streets prioritize non-motorized transportation. Strodes, on the other hand, have a large number of wide lanes in both directions, giant signs, traffic lights, parking lots, side streets, and a lack of sidewalks. Strodes fail at being both streets and roads. With all the side entrances and stoplights, they fail at moving traffic quickly. With the high number of lanes, lack of safe pedestrian crossings, and lack of walkability, they fail at being good for non-motorized transportation. They are ugly, desolate, unprofitable, and impractical. Strodes exist because we put more priority in car mobility than all other types of transportation. Why do Strodes exist in the first place? After World War II, the U.S. government invested a lot in getting housing for the veterans in the GI Bill. To accommodate all these people, they built huge suburbs similar to what we see today but with smaller houses. But that system was implausible if the suburb was too far from the city and other centers of employment. Enter Dwight D. Eisenhower. With largely bipartisan support, he invested in the interstate highway system. Though at the time, it was justified to allow the military to travel quickly across the country, it became quickly the means that regular people traveled over long distances. Sure, this had a lot of advantages. Road trips have become a lot easier and quicker. However, it allowed people to live more spread out than would have naturally occurred otherwise. That meant that cities and towns across America started to sprawl or develop a larger area of land across the central point than before. Driving an extra few miles to get a bite to eat was no longer a big deal. This sounds like a win-win, right? Wrong. In the short term, it was great. With new development came new property taxes and new sources of tax revenue, plus new businesses for the local community. However, as time went on, it became apparent that all the new infrastructure, roads, water, electricity, etc., cost a lot more than before. That's because it had to cover a much larger land area than before, reducing the efficiency and increasing the amount of material used. Let me add that cars, trucks, and tractor trailers have a huge impact on road longevity, whereas a road used only by pedestrians and bikes lasts generations without potholes or damage. This is why suburbs are actually a net loss to towns. They are fine to live in, I guess. More on that later. But they cost more to maintain than they give the city in revenue. Most towns and cities are kept afloat by the concentrated city center, in the older parts of town, while the rest act as financial parasites on the collective resources. Most towns and cities only make ends meet by getting in debt or getting money from the state and federal level. Finally, related to this is the phenomenon of parking lots. As they say, pave paradise to put up a parking lot. But think of your local Walmart. They are so ubiquitous that we take them for granted. 
It has more land devoted to parking than to the store itself. Most stores are like this. A substantial portion of towns are just parking lots and parking garages. Think about how much of a waste this is. Just empty space to park empty boxes that are mostly empty most of the time. Parking lots don't generate value or tax revenue, yet they cost money to maintain and they're deemed necessary in our current system to get business. Parking lots and parking garages are an eyesore. That's a fact. However, parking lots create space between businesses which can actually be useful. Do you think your mom and pop grocery store wants to be right next to a Walmart? I mean, right next to it? With all the semi-truck traffic going in and out? Probably not. And in areas where heavy pedestrian traffic meets heavy delivery truck traffic, there's a chance that accidents will occur more frequently. At least the system now places most people in their cars and leaves plenty of room for dangerous delivery vehicles to swing wide, so to speak. And as for parking garages, they actually do make some money. According to Chaosis Parking Technologies, the parking garage industry, yes, that's a real thing apparently, generates between $25 billion and $30 billion each year. A couple thousand dollars per spot for construction costs sounds like a lot, but over time these structures can turn a pretty decent profit, and they're built vertically so they take up less space. Another result of the suburbanization of America was what we now call white flight. Before these developments, cities were much better places to live. They had lots of minorities, but also a lot of white people and white immigrants. Over generations, they generated wealth. The cities were somewhat nice places to live with lots of jobs. They were the economic powerhouses of America, as they normally are and have been throughout history. However, this all changed when suburbs became the new norm. White people left the cities in droves to, quote, escape, because they could afford to. Haters say they did this to avoid living with minorities. Regardless, this transfer caused a lot of the wealth and productive citizenry to leave, and the cities were destroyed over time. If you grew up in the suburbs like us, ask yourself, what is your impression of the big city? I would say, nice to visit, but I would never live there. Besides the crowded nature of cities, there is a lot of crime, noise, and danger. I wonder why. Many suburban apologists agree with me. That's why the Karens say things like, the suburbs are a great place to raise a family. But are they really? I know Dan had a good experience with suburbs growing up because he had friends all around him. But nowadays, with low birth rates and modern development, the average suburbanite kid spends most of his free time inside on electronics, while boomers may decry the young generations. It's not hard to see why they are so sedentary. Besides complicit parents, there is simply not much to do outside. For decades, most suburbs have not built communal areas such as playgrounds or pools, besides the high-income ones. Every acre is full to the brim with houses and tiny yards. Like I mentioned earlier, they can't walk somewhere else to cure their boredom because suburbs are isolated from commercial enterprises and any other kind of enterprise besides housing. Everything is so spread out, and suburbs are the epitome of car-dependent development. Also, Karens will call the police if a child is outside without a parent there too. The car-centric development of suburbs makes them inhospitable to human life, such as some kids trying to play sports on their road. To accommodate cars, suburban streets are wide, and the drivers naturally go faster than the speed limit. You can't make a street the size of a four-lane road and expect people to go 20 miles per hour. It's just not going to happen. Suburbs, strodes, parking lots, and the spread-out nature of American towns are all a result of everything revolving around cars. So we can't blame the car itself for many of these things, but simply its acceptance as the normal and preferred way to get around. But the suburbs aren't all bad. Maybe they just weren't executed properly and need a little bit of TLC. Between city living and rural living exists a happy medium, which many call the suburb. Ideally, these neighborhoods exist in close enough proximity to the city to be convenient, while offering a larger living space and a yard, room to relax or play outside on your own property, or entertain guests. Throw in one or two vehicles and a decent-sized family can enjoy the independence and quieter lifestyle of the country while being close enough to the city to enjoy all the perks it has to offer. It should be the best of both worlds, but many would argue that it's the worst of both. This has less to do with the modern car, I would argue, and more to do with zoning laws mentioned earlier. As suburbs have stretched farther and farther from cities, the amenities found in the cities have not followed. This is due to our almost unquestioning acceptance of zoning laws, which came into existence at the beginning of the 20th century in places like New York, Boston, San Francisco, L.A. These laws were originally created to appease angry citizens, who were upset that skyscrapers, smoky factories, or loud manufacturing facilities were being built right beside their residence or small business. This is understandable. And in dense cities with public transport, 
it was easier to divide the area into districts based on what would be done there, residential districts, manufacturing districts, financial districts, etc. The philosophy behind these laws is this. They were intended to keep the peace, promote the health and safety of the people, and keep buildings with similar purposes together to limit drastic changes in property value. Put a bunch of residences together. No trouble. No loss of value. Put a bunch of factories together. They're all just as loud and dangerous as one another. So no trouble. No loss of value. A herd of skyscrapers? They'll cast shadows on one another and steal each other's air. So who cares? You get the idea. But these laws carried over into the suburbs, and that's where the trouble started. The same philosophy that governed city residences was used to regulate suburban residences, which meant only residences could exist together. This is why most suburbs are so monotonous and never include necessities like grocery stores, laundromats, hardware shops, emergency departments, and the rest within walking distance, except when neighborhoods are built near the border of a residential zone with a commercial zone. They've come into existence in the age of the car, so there's never been an incentive or a demand for such inclusions in the design of neighborhoods. Plus, supporters of the zoning status quo argue that including them would run the risk of increased complaints from residents who may not want to share their living space with delivery trucks or smoke from a restaurant kitchen or the scents from a laundry service. As if delivery trucks don't stop by our homes every day nowadays. Exactly. Amazon has really changed that game and, and really thrown that argument out the window. The point is this. Suburbs aren't all bad, but there's definitely a way to design them to be less reliant on the automobile and to be more comprehensive and offer a more diverse array of amenities than just houses with garages and tiny yards. We just need to figure out how to sell it to the public and actually do it. I will take your omission of Strode's in your counter-arguments as a victory on my part, but I'm sure you see them as a necessary evil to move your beloved cars. We have said enough about suburbs, so let's move on. The average American spends 293 hours driving annually, or 12 days. If you live to 75 years old, this is about two and a half years of your life. By the way, 54 hours per year are spent in stop-and-go traffic, or about five and a half months of your lifetime, just spent cussing out the other cars and stalling in the road. When you're driving, it is almost always wasted time. It is rightly illegal to surf the web or read a book while driving. So if you're not listening to the Sons of Antiquity podcast or an ebook, you're probably wasting your time. Beyond the time spent, traffic can be downright toxic to mental health. Dan, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like LA. I have. But it is terrible. They didn't call it Carmageddon a few years back for no reason. Being stuck in traffic ranks high in causes of stress and rage in the American experience. Now, I've certainly been in some traffic jams, uh, but nothing too bad. Nothing like Falling Down, for those of you who have seen that film. Uh, not so much that I would want to just abandon my vehicle and go on a, on a shooting spree. So, no, nothing that bad yet. But maybe one day I will be involved in something like that. Highways may be efficient at moving people if you ignore traffic, but they are some of the most ugly feats of civil engineering known to man. Highways decrease travel time, but they take business away from small towns to the benefit of fast food restaurants and other big chains. Also, I'm sure Dan will appreciate that the interstate highway system was funded in order to make it easier to move military personnel and equipment across the country. And when there's a rebellion, it will be a lot easier for the feds to put it down with their highways in place. That's the great thing about highways. Uh, they run in both directions, fed boys. Our nation's car infrastructure is extremely expensive to maintain and in very poor shape. Every year, $130 billion in damage is caused by deteriorating roads. It is estimated that we are about $786 billion behind in road maintenance in order to bring them up to our own standards. For all that money, we could really build a good train network across the country. It's funny how everyone complains about being stuck in traffic. Everybody. My brother in Christ, you are traffic. Traffic is caused by having too many vehicles on the road or having obstructions to said vehicles. Engineers try to solve this problem by widening highways or building new loops. But the problem will inevitably come back after just a few years, if that. Why? The Downs-Thompson effect, of course. There is always traffic on a highway, so the city widens the highway. At first, there is a notable reduction in traffic. But over time, it gets busier, and soon you're back to bad daily traffic. This is because people will make certain choices based on what's most convenient, quickest, cheapest, etc. Because the expanded highway is desirable to drivers, more people choose to drive there. The same would happen if public transit was quick, reliable, and clean. People would choose to take the train because most people aren't very attached to a certain form of transportation. 
they just want the option that's best. But the capacity of trains to move people is much higher than cars. While it is true that traffic is a major problem, having the ability to mobilize military equipment and personnel on a large scale in case of emergency is handy. The highway system, though flawed in many ways, is a unique feature of the vast American empire that might be better to have and not need than need and not have. It would definitely be prudent to invest in alternative forms of transportation to compete with the interstate system, to decrease traffic, drive down costs for individuals traveling long distances, so on and so forth. But the highway system should remain, as it offers an important tactical advantage that other countries lack, mostly because they'll rely on us to do any potential fighting for them. We're looking at you, Ukraine. And at least highways allow the vehicles that want or need to move quickly to do so away from homes and businesses without being totally isolated from civilization in some sort of wilderness expressway. You got to admit, it's convenient to jump in your car at home, carrying whatever you need with you or whoever you want with you, hop on the highway and reach your destination at your convenience with the ability to stop for conveniences along the way. That may not be possible in big cities during rush hour, but in small to medium ones, it's totally doable. And it's not like buses or trains will never be delayed or experience the same rush hour traffic as highways, no matter how many we try to cram into the spaces between points of interest. New York's subway system is a mess. And although Chicago's roads are a bit wider and the public transport system is arguably better, the average commuter in Chicago still spends 30 minutes traveling one way to work. There may be no escaping the evils of the traffic jam. There's no such thing as a train jam. Let me be clear. But trains do get slowed down. And it, and it is easy to block the rails. You know, in a highway, you could go in another lane. There may be traffic, but you could eventually move around it unless it's a tractor trailer across the entire road, which is, uh, it happens, but it's unlikely. A tractor trailer laying across the train tracks will stop a train for a long time. But see, you're just pointing out how cars are inconveniences to everything. The uh, cars are causing trains to be slower. You're admitting that. Yeah, but I mean, it could be anything. That was just an example. It could be anything laying in the tracks. You know, it could be, it's been herds of animals. It's been things like that. And to me, cars and trucks, as far as 18-wheelers, very different things. You'll never have a world without those. You need those. You can't get rid of those. Because as I mentioned earlier, you know, the trains just can't go to every every big business. So you'll need those 18-wheelers. Those will always need roads. They'll always need highways. They'll always be out there. Should we reduce the numbers? Yeah, if you've ever been down uh, down south, down 85, um, yeah, we should definitely reduce the numbers. 85 on a Sunday, that's bad. Uh, but you, you still need them. You'll probably still need armies of them if the cities want to continue to be fed. I mean, it used to be just train cars bringing everything into the cities, and that worked perfect for a long time. Agree to disagree. Train networks are centrally planned, and they stick to a schedule, so... I mean, in theory, there's no such thing as a stoppage. They're supposed to get there at 7.28 a.m. And if you go to, like, Switzerland, they're meticulously on time. They are perfectly on time every time. Like their watches. Yeah, perfect. It'll be, like, right on the second, pretty much. They're they're there waiting for you. And they'll leave when it's time to leave. They're not going to wait too long for you. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they got a schedule to keep. And just another point, you say there's going to be train jams, car jams, whatever. There could be. There could be. But trains are so much more efficient at moving people. If you think about the square footage. Oh, of course. Yeah, I, I mean, I brought yeah, the that car, I mean, up earlier. Yeah, the car is, uh, it, it definitely has limitations when it comes to long hauling, big, uh, heavy payloads, for sure. No, I mean, just moving people. It's extremely inefficient. Oh, well, inefficient for, for human beings, too. Yeah, I mean, you got to have a, a, a whole automobile with a whole engine burning gas for what? Two people, probably, mostly. Yeah. Most people aren't carpooling that many, yeah, especially not to work. Probably driving a, a minivan. Could hold seven or eight people. It's just you. Yeah. Let's move on to the most important factor, health and quality of life. The obvious downside of cars is their ability to cause death and property destruction. In 2020, almost 39,000 deaths occurred due to cars, a large increase even though people drove less on average. This statistic per capita exceeds every other developed country. 2.28 million people were injured by crashes as well in the same year. In fact, the leading cause of death for people aged 1 to 54 is automobile accidents. $871 billion in property damage is caused due to automobile accidents every year. This comes out to about $900 per person, further adding on top of the $10,000 value I did earlier. This is true. This is true. It's starting to add up here. Let's address the dangers of all types of transportation. 
Although 30 to 40,000 people per year die in auto accidents, as Evan mentioned, other modes of transportation are not risk-free. About 900 people per year die in train-related accidents, and of the tens of thousands of deaths related to cars, about 4,000 of those are related to commercial vehicles or trucks. So even if private citizens transition away from driving cars, commercial pickup trucks and box trucks, 18-wheelers, and buses will likely still account for a significant number of deaths per year, and those automobiles will still be around even if we decrease the number of privately owned automobiles. And what about the hazards that subway stations and train stations present? In big cities especially, violence, drug use, vandalism, theft, and homelessness abound in these areas. According to the Bureau of Transportation Statistics, in the U.S., there are roughly 1,000 assaults, 120 robberies, 10 rapes, 15 homicides, and about 30 to 40 suspicious packages and or bomb threats each year, all related to public transport. And if you've ever been on the subway in a major city, you know how bad the homelessness problem can get. I will say this up front. I'm convinced that widespread car ownership has contributed significantly to obesity in this country. Sure, personal responsibility is always a factor, and you can be in shape if you make a large effort. But sitting in a car for so much time every day makes you a more sedentary being. Simply walking more every day would help keep the pounds off. The only walking you do with a car is to walk to and from the car at departure and arrival, and the parking is almost certainly as conveniently located as possible. Of course, walking or riding a bicycle to your destination is good for your health, but even taking public transit is better. If you take a train or subway to work, you have to walk from your residence to the train station, wait until it arrives, walk on and find a seat or stand if it's too crowded, possibly change trains, and walk from your stop to the destination. The car culture, strode system, and clever advertising collaborate to cause a ton of Americans to eat fast food on any given day. It's simply the most convenient way to get food. It's fast, obviously, and you don't even have to leave your car if you don't want to. On any given day, a third of Americans are eating fast food, and the average person eats it one to three times per week. 83% of American families eat fast food at least once a week. They spend 10% of their income on this most American of cuisines. As common sense affirms, fast food increases your risk for obesity, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and depression. Now don't believe me when I say that cars lead to more fast food. You may agree, obviously, that fast food is bad for you, but do cars cause it? I would answer that by doing a simple thought experiment. If you lived within easy walking distance to a McDonald's and, let's say, a classic American diner and a locally owned family Greek restaurant, which would you walk to? Personally, I would almost never go to McDonald's if I had to walk there, because the appeal of McDonald's is the convenience and the not, not having to get out of your car. Or imagine if there was no drive-thru and McDonald's was crowded on the inside. Would you go? Would you bother to go in and wait for your order to be ready when you could just go to the diner or the Greek restaurant next door and wait for the same amount of time and just pay a little bit more for real food? Fast food without a drive-thru and without cars... It simply would not be what it is today. Now, as far as fast food goes, uh, an article by Nation's Restaurant News looked at a number of studies and surveys which indicated that most everybody, regardless of demographic or income level, consumed fast food. They even found that the largest consumers of fast food were centered in the South and in big cities. Kind of uh, two extremes there. How strange. However, there was a slight correlation between people who worked longer hours and those who ate more fast food or ate it more frequently. So cars aren't the only factor in this scenario. Big coincidence that, that uh, car ownership and fast food came about at the same time, but I digress. I know some old timers, and probably Dan, love to rev up their engines and wake up the whole neighborhood Heck because no, it's the man. manly thing to do. Heck no, I don't do that junk. I've yelled at neighbors for doing that. Okay, that's, that's where good. I draw the line. Good. The rest of us get annoyed, and Dan does too, it turns out. And it goes beyond mere annoyance. Constant noise is actually bad for your health. Constant noise has been found to increase cardiovascular disorders, hypertension, stress, hearing loss, tinnitus, sleep disturbances, cognitive decline, social isolation, and more. Cities are not inherently loud. Cars are loud. People, bikes, and trams cannot get that loud. The constant noise in cities is a result of cars, not people. Cars do bring a lot of noise to the city, arguably the majority of it. But even if cities were redesigned to feature no-car zones and biking or pedestrian-friendly spaces, there's still the issue of buses, garbage trucks, emergency vehicles, and construction, none of which will stop when the number of cars decreases. 
Although, some of these new Shire-like spaces, to borrow Evan's analogy, might be insulated from those noises. The residents on the outskirts will still have to contend with those nuisances. This gets to the root of the issue. Modern cities and towns are built to accommodate the car and nothing else. If you're a mere pedestrian, car-centric areas are hostile. However, people have a natural love for traditional areas where lanes are narrow, walking is easy, and noise is low. People yearn for the Shire, or more realistically, an old European town that has not adapted to the modern era. You know what I'm talking about, probably. Areas where it feels like people are happy, social, physically fit, and able to congregate. This is not simply nostalgia for a bygone era. These places are legitimately pleasant to live in and visit. That is why some cities in Europe, and to a lesser extent in America, have car-free or almost car-free areas. While they inevitably get a lot of pushback at first, the result is always the same. People walk around there, commerce increases, and it's quieter. Even Times Square is now car-free, and I'd say it's the better for it. And let me say, it doesn't mean that you can't have packages come or the disabled can leave. That's a common misconception. But it's it's a way of limiting most cars going in. And sure. only delivery trucks and exceptions can get in and out. Walkability should be striven for in every city. Even if there are cars, urban planning should make sure that all the essentials are within a walking distance from apartments. This encourages small businesses, moderate exercise, less car use, less noise, and a greater sense of belonging. Cars may be the mortal enemy of walkability, but what if the car isn't the only thing that makes people want to live so far from each other, making driving a necessity? The history of America is essentially the history of, I don't like it here, I'm going over there. Think of the gold rush, the taming of the West, the colonization of the New World itself, the aforementioned white flight, the growing homesteading trend, and, dare I say, the Benedict Option itself. Check out episode 25 for more on that topic. It's a banger. We don't just see this with private individuals either. Businesses especially benefit from standing out from the crowd. Couple that natural drive to seek out our own spaces with the free market that has defined the American economy, and it's no wonder why so many points of interest are a little spread out beyond walking or biking distance. And as we mentioned earlier, prior to zoning laws in big cities, companies weren't staying together in the same districts. They were actively trying to plant themselves in unique spaces, much to the dismay of existing businesses and residents. Maybe human nature is partly to blame there. Finally, I won't harp on the environmental impact of cars too much because, for me, it's not the most compelling argument, and I know there are a lot of listeners, and Dan, who don't really care about what the Greens say. But for the sake of those who care at least some, like me, let's cover it. These consequences are not just global warming. There is a lot of runoff from vehicles every year. Vehicles dump enough contaminants to pollute 1.5 trillion gallons of water every year. These chemicals kill fish, plants, water organisms, and humans. Besides carbon, many pollutants get into the air as a result of the internal combustion engine. Gas-powered vehicles release soot, VOCs, nitrogen oxides, carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, and greenhouse gases, all of which, besides the last at least directly, kill life and make us sicker. A ton of land must be expropriated by the state in order to build or expand roadways. This land is either developed or undeveloped. If it is developed, it means the government must use the power of eminent domain to seize land from private landowners. If it is undeveloped, it boils down to tearing down forest and other wildlife in order to pave it and establish shoulders. Either way, it is a loss in value. For the time being, most cars are gas-powered. This means that petroleum must be extracted in order to fill this huge demand. The U.S. consumes over 7 billion barrels of petroleum products yearly. The environmental effects of this process are huge. Even assuming no oil spills occur, this process is extremely damaging to plant and animal life. Habitats have to be destroyed and the refining process releases toxic chemicals into the air, soil, and water. Also, it makes us rely on countries that we shouldn't want to support. Finally, Dan's favorite, climate change. According to mainstream science, trademark, cars, trucks, and buses emit a fifth of all global warming pollution in the U.S. In fact, I happen to hear that the EU voted recently to ban the sale of new gasoline and diesel-powered cars by 2035. That's a big deal. With a 55% greenhouse gas reduction of those vehicles by 2030, only 8 years away from the time of recording. That's 13 years from now to have no gas or diesel-powered cars in this huge region of the world. In fact, Though the UK left the EU, 
It has an even more ambitious goal of forbidding the sale of new gasoline and diesel-powered cars by 2030, with no tailpipe emissions from any vehicles, even grandfathered ones, allowed by 2035. This is extreme by American standards, but I suspect that similar legislation is coming to America in our lifetimes. I know it will. Dan, I see you fuming over there. Why don't you let us know what you think? Yeah, let's talk about the environment. I'll acknowledge that cars release a lot of nasty fumes, and the energy and land use required to get the fuel for cars and the materials to make cars is staggering. Had we been more forward-thinking 100 years ago, we could have improved city and suburb design to eliminate these costs and these environmental impacts. We would have used fewer resources, building 100 million bikes over the last century as opposed to similar number of cars. But what's done is done. We can only look for solutions to our current problem, and although the restructuring of our civilization to return to tradition may seem great, let's consider the environmental impact of that. Think of the enormous energy expenditures and added fossil fuel consumption required to overhaul our transportation system nationwide to get rid of the strodes and the highways, things like that. We're already $30 trillion in debt, so it's unlikely we'll get the money for it. And even though we may benefit long-term from this project, we'd still have to maintain the same level of fuel consumption during construction so as not to upset the flow of city life, while also consuming more fuel to bulldoze entire city blocks, mine, or construct the replacement materials, and rebuild it all. And as for climate change, not all scientists agree it is happening. The ones that do don't all agree it's changing a lot or a little. The ones that agree it is changing a lot don't all agree it is changing in the same way. And of those scientists, not all of them agree we can do anything about it. And of those scientists, not all of them agree on the next course of action. And for the changes we are observing, there's no direct evidence that the burning of fossil fuels is the only factor, or even the most significant factor, considering Earth's climate has been drastically different at various times in history, well before the modern age. So no matter what we do, in my opinion, cars or no cars, it probably won't change a darn thing, as far as the environment is concerned. Well, at least some of us are uh, are trying to save the Earth. The solution is electric cars, right? Yeah, right, totally. Yeah, okay. Many climate activists, such as the ones I mentioned in the EU, hope to replace combustion vehicles with electric ones. Electric cars are the way of the future, right? Wrong. My degree is in STEM, where we studied this and similar topics intensively. So this topic is right up my alley. So here we go. Most of my objections to cars are not addressed by electric cars, or they actually make the problems worse. Let's start with affordability. Electric cars, for now at least, cost far more than a regular gas-powered car. In fact, Teslas are really only feasible if you're in the market for luxury cars. I have heard that they are very nice to drive and I know they look slick. Until models come out that most people can afford, I'm thinking $25,000 or less for a new model, the forced conversion to electric cars will devastate the poor and middle class, only helping those who live a life of comfort. I have in mind the rich liberals and double-income no-kids, across the country who don't have the same grasp of economic reality as the rest of us. Yes, electric car owners don't have to pay for gas and maintenance is cheaper, but they do have to pay for electricity, and the capital costs to buy them are out of reach for most people. Electric cars are the same size as regular cars, so traffic, parking, and infrastructure are exactly the same under electric cars. You will still get stuck in traffic in your Tesla and use up 140 square feet for one parking spot. But at least the handles sink into the car, so maybe there's an extra few square inches. EVs still maintain America's individualist culture and ignore public transit, which moves large volumes of people much more efficiently than individual cars. Most of the investment into green transportation will go into developing electric cars instead of making train and tram networks work. It's a real shame. Electric cars will contribute equally to the obesity epidemic, However, I must admit that electric cars are quieter, so the new noise pollution is decreased. But now we get to the supposed golden reason to switch to electric cars, the environmental impact. But here's where I put my bachelor's degree to work, which makes me equally qualified to build Knight the Science Guy. Lithium-ion batteries do not appear in nature. They cannot be grown on an organic farm that's cage-free, cruelty-free, and grass-fed. The materials must be mined in absolutely appalling conditions. The lithium from the batteries is actually not that bad to extract, and it largely co comes from Chile. But cobalt is another essential ingredient. The majority of the world's cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. This is done in terrible conditions where death is common, children are forced to work, and corruption is rampant. 
By the time one electric car is produced, it has emitted 15 to 30 tons of carbon dioxide. This compares to the average gas-powered car, which produces 10 tons by the time it's ready, instead of 15 to 30. However, I must admit, as the years go by, the carbon footprint of a gas car exceeds an EV due to the former's use of gasoline. On average, an electric car causes 2 tons of CO2 to be emitted annually, and a gas car does 5.2 tons of CO2. This depends heavily on where you live, of course. But still, it is a process which produces a lot of greenhouse gases and damages the environment in the third world. What happens to the batteries once they need to be replaced? Probably have to be buried underground like nuclear waste. Wow. Hey, now, don't hate too much on nuclear waste. It gets buried in very safe, very confined, very isolated places. And those aren't going to fill up anytime soon. It's not like we're running out of places to put nuclear waste. It's not just, oh, let's just throw it right in the ground, right behind Billy's backyard. You know, they do take some precautions. I just want to be fair. I want to make sure we're giving nuclear a fair shake. This is the way of the future. Moving on. It is true that the EV has no dependence on petroleum once it leaves the lot, but it has a dependence on electricity. What happens if your electricity goes out for a few days because of an ice storm? Oops. Where does your electricity come from? This varies by where you live, but some places are almost solely coal or natural gas. If you live in one of these places, you're still using unclean sources of energy to power your commute. Now, I won't be entirely one-sided. Electric cars are, overall, better for the environment than gas cars, and cost less per month. It costs much less to fully charge up your battery than to fill up your gas tank, especially with the current state of things. Reference the linked Engineering Explained video about the costs of both types of vehicles. EVs are much quieter and produce no air nor water pollution when driven. Also, they cost less to maintain, since they don't have an internal combustion engine. My beef with electric cars is not the technology, which is cool and will make our transportation better overall for people in the environment, but the self-righteous attitude of their advocates. The inherent attractiveness of the EV is its surface appearance of solving all the problems of the gas car, while all the unsavory and harmful things are out of sight, out of mind. I generally agree with everything Evan just said, but I'll add a few points of my own for the sake of argument. The electric car revolution is in its infancy, but if it keeps going, keeps becoming more efficient, I can envision a utopia, or a dystopia, depending on how you look at it, where all cars in the city are electric and guided by artificial intelligence, either independently in each vehicle or a singular citywide brain like Alexa on steroids, which would cut down on traffic due to human error, reduce pollution, decrease noise, increase overall efficiency, and allow the elites to control that system to revoke your driving privileges if you post something mean on Facebook, just like Black Mirror. Overall, the electric car thing has more long-term cons than pros, in my opinion. It's a band-aid that won't help us return to our meaningful and respectable traditions, but will instead enable more laziness, more slothfulness, more obesity, more dependence on tech and oligarchs that produce it and control it, more self-centeredness and impatience, and it will further reinforce the status quo. Lastly, I'd just like to say that I find it hilarious that these politicians and bureaucrats, globalists, who claim to care so much about the poor in the third world, literally want to force all of us to switch over to technology that isn't ready to handle so many customers, has a fragile and anemic infrastructure, and relies on the abuse of the world's poor to procure the materials required to build it all. Some things just never change. Finally, and into our complaining and beginning of solutions. Of course, the best way to fix all of the problems of the car and modern infrastructure is to turn back the clock and stop the Industrial Revolution. But there's no putting that cat back in the bag. Assuming that we want to keep all of our nice stuff, here are a few solutions that I think would make things better. Public transit, both within cities and between cities and towns, needs to be improved drastically. It is simply the most efficient way to move people around. Within cities, trams are my personal favorite, but subways also work. Between cities and states, high-speed rail would be the most excellent choice. Most of the high-tech proposals to curb traffic are just attempts to turn cars into trains. Another option that is rarely considered is the motorcycle or moped. It makes many of the problems of cars diminish. Motorcycles take up less space, contribute less to traffic, require less parking space, damage infrastructure much less, get much higher miles per gallon than cars, use less gas per mile, are much more affordable and require more exercise and mental engagement. However, they are loud, even more so than cars. Also, they're, they're dangerous, but that's not an environmental risk. It's just a risk to each person driving, I guess. Yeah. 
you're I'm, you're definitely more likely to die if you get hit by a car or a bus than a motorcycle. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But hey, motorcycles are really only dangerous because of cars hitting them. <coughs> Walkability is key. If destinations are not close to each other within a town or city, then it is not viable to walk nor bike, and public transit is inefficient and expensive. Also, walkable areas could do a lot to make cities recover and stop being perceived as hellholes full of convicts. Big changes to our zoning laws need to happen. Single-family residential zoning causes suburban wastelands and costs the city a lot of money. At least allow small shops to open up in neighborhoods with very limited parking so that each neighborhood can become a micro-community and car ownership isn't so absolutely necessary. At least to maintain a balanced budget in municipalities, city leaders should devise some way to get the suburbs to pay their fair share. I suggest that they charge more for utilities based on how far you are from the city center. It is time for everybody to stop subsidizing the suburbs because it's not a matter of increasing taxes on suburbs. It's just getting them to pay for their own existence. It's just bringing them back in the black, if you will. Yeah, so that everybody's on the same level. Yeah, because right now they're getting subsidized and Karens might hear it. And here we go, Karens again. But Karens will hear it and like, oh, you're oppressing us. No, we're just, we don't want everybody to give you a free free lunch. Of course, yeah. We want everybody to pay their fair share, as you said. Yeah. I'm not asking for persecution of suburbs just for them to stop mooching off of everyone else. And as I said, I'm sure the Karens will ask to speak to my manager. Speaking of persecution, cities, states, and the federal government should crack down on the massive corporations that run our lives, not just Facebook and Twitter, but even Walmart, McDonald's. The ubiquity of Walmart and McDonald's and the demise of the small businesses are terrible news for America in all kinds of ways. One way we could hurt the finances of the big stores is to put in ordinances on how much parking is allowed for one store, or to tax the heck out of parking lots past a certain number of spaces. We need to return to traditional architecture and city planning. Strodes are monstrosities that fail at being streets and roads. They encourage many of the problems I mentioned already, or maybe they are just a symptom. Either way, lanes need to be narrowed, pedestrian walkways prioritized, and bike lanes installed. Streets and city and town centers need to discourage car throughput and put the pedestrian and bicyclists first. This makes sense economically and it will make cities better places to be in. Finally, as a last resort, the government could institute a new tax on the miles a person has driven. It's obvious that the government is pushing us to stop using gas cars. Not as directly as the EU yet, but that's coming. A miles-driven tax, perhaps instead of a gas tax, will be necessary to fund the roads once more people drive electric. Right now, uh, electric cars don't have to pay any taxes to maintain our roads, so they're getting a free lunch now. Heavy Teslas still take a toll on roads and take advantage of the spread-out nature of America. The EV drivers need to stop getting a free pass on taxes. And let me add, in my free time, I made another Excel spreadsheet. There you go again. Yeah, there I go again. And did you know that if you double the weight of a car, it causes 16 times more damage? Oh, okay. So it's it's not um, it's not proportional. It's not linear. No. Not linear, yeah. An 8,000-pound car causes 16 times more damage than a 4,000-pound car to wow. the roads. So I think it's only fair that we have some kind of weight distribution and miles-driven tax to where you multiply the factor of damage by the amount of miles. And that way, the big the big rigs, the huge trucks pay more in taxes to repair the roads because they're the ones causing the most damage. If only bicycles were on the highways, you would never have a pothole in 100 years. No, you're right. You wouldn't. Uh, but, I mean, the practicality of that is is uh, basically out the window. I mean, it, you're, you're never going to be able to get that to fly you know the 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 truckers the unions they'll never let that slide a, a tax like that on 18 wheelers even though they are doing the most damage I, I agree um it would just be impractical i'm not sure that you would be able to figure out a way around that yeah i made a little spreadsheet where only the damage factor is only squared instead of to the fourth power and doing some numbers i estimate it would generate over 400 billion in value every year in taxes Wow. Which is value to the government and not value, opposite of value to everyone else. But yeah, exactly. It'll all go to Ukraine or Israel. Yeah, but if, if it was set aside to pay for the roads, we could actually rebuild the infrastructure and have the people that are causing the damage pay for it. Of instead course. Instead of having everyone pay pretty much equally. Yeah, if we could figure out a way to actually redistribute money that is just spent on the most ridiculous things at, at the federal level or even at the state level and, and distribute it to actually taking care of the things it does need to take care of like the roads and the highways, 
yeah, that that would be great. But sadly, you know, corruption is rampant, and it's just it's a uh, it's wishful thinking. Watch our episode on taxes; you won't regret it. Yeah, a lot of spreadsheet action on that one, and of really good information though. It was it was quite a hoss. I'll give you that. All kidding aside, I think the best solution here is with new construction. Say you're a developer and you are adding on to an existing city or building up an up-and-coming neighborhood similar to the suburban areas that Evan and I are familiar with. Why not take some risks and reject modernity? Why not replicate some of the really cool neighborhoods found in the Netherlands, where all people, even armies of kids, ride their bikes everywhere? I get it. You'd have to fight City Hall to accomplish a lot of it. But maybe one day an Elon Musk type will take the fight to the zoning laws. And once a few of these places are established across the country, They'll become hot tourist spots, guaranteed. They'll make the news. They'll blow up on social media. And maybe the word will spread and inspire similar innovations in larger and larger markets. We can only hope. Last thing I'll add. The car is the symbol of rugged individualism. It allows people to travel basically anywhere, and it gives people the feeling that they are in control of their own path, their own fate. That's a hard feeling to overcome, especially in America. And for many people, you will possibly never convince them to give that up because they'll feel stranded without their car. It will be a tough battle, which may take generations to finally win, but there's one thing I know about America, it's this. We've been known to do the impossible before, and there's no reason we can't do it again. Now it's time for the takeaways. Evan has some issues with cars, and that's putting it mildly. And despite his long rant, Evan drives an SUV and lives in the suburbs. So he's a total hypocrite. And here I thought that was my job. Understandably, he thinks that car ownership is the only economically feasible option for him right now, and I would agree. But he is thinking about selling his SUV and getting a motorcycle. Dan is a patriotic American who loves all that America stands for and doesn't want any gay European ideas coming here. Take your bidet, take your bicycles, GTFO. (laughs) Actually, low-key, I kind of want a bidet. I think, you know, I think that'd be a real nice addition to my apartment. (laughs) The Greens are hypocrites that don't really care about the human cost of adhering to their agenda. And if they did, they'd be having a lot more great conversations like the one we just had about real ways to transform the transportation system here in the U.S. The overall costs of car ownership are higher than most people think, and we should keep our options open for what lies ahead. I would argue that it isn't just the environment that suffers, but humans most of all. When the car wins. Finally, lingering questions. Did Dan expect me to have such strong opinions on a seemingly random topic? Of course. Uh, (laughs) You know, there's one thing I know about you, Evan. It's that you're full of surprises, and uh, I've learned to expect the unexpected. And uh, you are, I think, as opinionated as me on many things, although sometimes it doesn't always show. Um, So when you came to me and said, hey, man, I've been thinking about doing an episode on cars... So, okay, okay. And he said, oh, maybe it'll just be a a solo video or or thing, you know, 30 pages of notes later. (laughs) Here we are. So, yeah, I mean, it was, I felt like it was, it was time, you know, it it hadn't, hadn't happened in a while that you'd really gone off on a, on a rant, but I'm glad we got to do it this time. This is a really interesting topic. Now, here's my question. Is this episode relevant to anything besides cars? Are there any other ramifications? What do you think, Evan? It speaks generally to the individualization of the Western world and that we all, we, we feel like we have the right to do whatever we want, whenever we want for whatever reason. And, uh, I think that idea is very foreign to world history, even among, well, even among enlightenment, enlightenment think, thinkers who I would argue kind of ruined a lot of things, but the idea that everyone is their own atom, that there's no connection needed between people and we shouldn't have to spend time with other people or share resources at all. I don't like that idea, and I think it's a bad characteristic of the modern right. It's going to hurt them in the long term when they just have this jerk reaction to what we just discussed, as in, oh, of course, I have, to, I have to have my car. I want to do what I want. I want the freedom. Even though trains would run on a schedule, like a good train system every, would pick you up every like 15, 30 minutes. Yeah, and a good bus system like in a European country is going to do the same thing. It's going to be on time because it's taken care of. They take care of those public utilities. And uh, when worse comes to worse, You live in a place where you could get most everything you wanted by just walking or riding your bike. So you're, you're, you're still pretty free in those environments. I would just ask you sometime to go to a Western or Northern European city 
and let me know what you think. Or even if you can't, there are some great videos on YouTube where you can just tour a city from someone recording on on their uh, camera mounted to a bike or just them walking around holding a camera. You can see all these beautiful and uh, very, uh, to us, would be innovative designs for their cities. It's really cool. Yeah, Not Just Bikes is a very binge-worthy channel, at least in my opinion. You may not think so, but I like it, and lots of people do. Did you find any of my arguments compelling? I did. I think at the end of the day, I want more diversity when it comes to the way we transport ourselves. It's maybe the one time I want more diversity. Diversity is our strength. (laughs) And when it comes to transportation, it really could be. You know, I want people to still be able to drive their cars. I wouldn't give up my truck, but I would certainly drive it a lot less if I lived in a place like we see in the in the that Netherlands video you had me watch in preparation for the show. Everything is so close and everything is is seems so uh, just fun to ride around to. And you interact with so many different people who are on their bikes. You're waving, you're happy, you're smiling, you're getting fresh air, and you're getting exercise. And I've got a bike. It's sitting right over there. And I rarely use it. Why? Because I have to drive it over to a trail in order to use it. And there are very few places that I could access from my living space on my bike uh, without getting run the heck over. So yeah, I, I am compelled by a lot of those arguments. And I think we really need to try to figure out ways to invest, even if it's just locally, trying to make those different modes of transportation a reality. And lastly, will this episode be Evan's Voyager? I was a little bit confused by the question, but I think I get it now. Yes, and if you're if you're unfamiliar with this, maybe you're new to the show. Episode six, I believe it was, Voyager and the Golden Discs, was an episode not really geared towards antiquity. It was about the Voyager spacecraft, which is currently well, both of them are currently the f- the farthest objects, man-made objects from Earth. They've exited the solar system, as it were, and we did an episode on that, and uh, it has some of the lowest views. <laughs> On YouTube. So I thought, hmm, I hope this doesn't turn out to be Evan's version of Voyager because the similarities may be striking. So we'll see. Only time will tell, right? I have some hope in our YouTube and BitChute viewers. I know you guys can bump this up to at least over six views. If you can do that, it double digits would be great. (laughs) Double digits would be great. Triple digits would be unbelievable. You would completely morb us into the next century. I would love it. Is there anything else you would like to add, Evan? I've said plenty. That's all for today's show. Make sure to like, subscribe, and leave your comments. We will respond if you're not a schizo. Join us again next time for even more Ancient Wisdom.